More lockdowns and mandates hitting cities, not just in the U.S., but around the world. The new measures come as the tragic impact of school closures and public health mitigation and rules become increasingly clear. We'll take a look at the latest Fauciite tyranny and its effects in tonight's Hold the Line. Welcome to Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. President Biden addressing the nation today because we have an all-time high of COVID cases in the United States. We're hitting global highs now, actually, for COVID cases all over the world. But hold on a second. I thought we had this amazing vaccine. It was going to stop the spread. It was all supposed to work just according to their plan, except it didn't. We can all see it. They can pretend like we can't, but we can, and we know, and we remember. They said please get the shot. And then they said, yeah, kind of have to get the shot. And then it was get the shot or else, but it's going to end the pandemic. That was the promise, right? Get the shot or else, but we promise you the pandemic will end once you do. And then 60 plus percent of all Americans and 90 percent plus of those at high risk got the shot. And guess what? It's still spread all over the place. So much for herd immunity at 60 percent vaccines, right? Meanwhile, Joe Biden has to address the nation saying, oh, it's still a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Watch this one. This is from today. We have in hand all the vaccines we need to get every American fully vaccinated, including the booster shot. So there's no excuse, no excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So we got to make more progress. And for patients who still haven't gotten your kids vaccinated, please get them vaccinated. Huh. It's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Except they don't even use the term breakthrough cases anymore. Because if they did, we would have to say how many breakthrough cases? Oh, they're all over the place. You can't even keep track of them anymore. The vaccine has clearly failed as a firewall against infection and spread. Yeah. That's where we are, folks. We can all see it. They're lying to you. They're lying to you. Yeah, the vaccines are good, if you're particularly in that protection window of a few months, at limiting your risk, although not eliminating it, of hospitalization and death. But as a means of preventing the infection and spread of the virus? No. This is about personal protection now, not community protection. But they won't let it go. They won't let it go. Now we have some people in major cities making demands that we go back to some of the same failed policies of the past, like school closures. Joe Biden, of course, not coming down hard on the public sector teachers unions and their slothful insanity of trying to shut down schools again, you know, because they're all so scared. Wait, but aren't they all vaccinated or haven't they had the chance to get vaccinated? What's the big deal? Biden saying that he thinks schools should remain open. Hmm. Watch. Look, We have no reason to think at this point that Omicron is worse for children than previous variants. We know that our kids can be safe when in school, by the way. That's why I believe schools should remain open. You know, they have what they need because of the American Rescue Plan, where the first month we were in office, or second month, that I signed in March, we provided the states with $130 billion, with a B, billion dollars, to specifically keeps our students safe and schools open. Schools open. At least it seems the Democrats have realized that it is politically disastrous for them to shut down schools again. 
when schools are low risk places for children to begin with, children are at low risk from COVID, and there are enormous damaging consequences to shutting it all down, right? We should all be quite aware of that at this point. But guess what? Detroit Public Schools, for example, are a place that still want to shut down if they can. The public sector unions in Chicago and even in New York are making noise about closing schools. Right now, some schools are so short on staff that they de facto go into a shutdown status, at least for a few days, maybe a few weeks. But a full-on mandated shutdown? Here's a Detroit Public School board member defending school closures. We are uh, aggressively testing and providing free testing for all of our staff. We see those numbers over the holiday um, has continued to impact um, our community. A number of people have had the Omicron virus. Uh, I just recovered myself right before and during Christmas. Um, So we know that it's highly contagious and we just want to flatten the curve. uh, And I think that is certainly the best way to go to keep everyone safe. They can't flatten the curve. I mean, why are we even still pretending? There's, there's, no, there's no flattening the curve by shutting down schools, not even going to make a dent in it. The data in New York City suggested that restaurants, for example, were a place that maybe less than 1% of actual COVID transmission was occurring, but they shut down restaurants because, you know, just do stuff. So now we're seeing that the teachers' unions, who are really the bad guys, so to speak, in this whole situation, they're just awful, They've got their chief commissar, Weingarten, out there saying a vaccine mandate for kids five and over is necessary for keeping our schools safe. Is your is the American Federation of Teachers now supportive of mandatory vaccination for all students five and over? What Gavin Newsom did in California is really the best model, which is that the semester after they are they go from emergency use to full authorization and the FDA has done everything that they need to do. That's what California has said. That is the semester that they become mandatory. But And you right support now, that nationally? And, I, and, and I, I personally support that. I support vaccine mandates, she says, for kids five and up. Now, she's a teacher's union hack, so it's not surprising that she's going to take this maximal or maximum uh, Democrat Fauciite position. I guess it's not surprising either then that the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has said that kids five and up, it's critical for them to be vaccinated. Watch this. I would say at this point, it is still not uh, clear that kids are more susceptible uh, to Omicron compared to adults. But we do know uh, that in many parts of the world uh, that kids uh, have had a lower vaccination rate, uh, which may be one of the operative uh, elements here that's driving, uh, you know, kids to not only get sick, but to have some kids end up in the hospital. It's why, you know, I think we have even more work to do here uh, to get more children vaccinated. We've got, a, we've got more than 200 million people vaccinated, fully vaccinated in our country, millions who are boosted. Uh, but kids, you know, had vaccines uh, authorized later for them, uh, you know, because the studies took longer to do, and that was important to do thoroughly. But now we've got to really push, put our foot on the accelerator, get our kids who are five and above vaccinated. Uh, it's more critical than ever. Kids do not need this shot, but they won't give it up, friends. They're not going to be. They're not going to be done with this until your children are on a vaccination schedule for COVID which has about a one in a million chance of killing any individual child in this country. 
um, they're going to want your kid to get the shot every year because there's going to be variants every year, right? Uh, we cannot reason with these neurotic control freaks. They are, they are incapable of reason at this point. All we can do is point out the truth and take away power. That's all we can do. All right, we got mental health issues, suicide rates on the rise among America's children. It is awful, and it's becoming difficult to ignore the damaging effects of the government's COVID-19 policies. We come back, we'll talk to the president of the Brownstone Institute, Jeffrey Tucker, about the impact these policies are having on a generation of American kids. Stay with us for that. The tremendous effect that school closures and public health mandates are having on America's school children are becoming harder to ignore. In addition to failing behind in their academics, falling behind rather, children and teens are now increasingly suffering from mental health issues. In his morning newsletter, New York Times reporter David Leonhardt writes that the issues have been, quote, aggravated by the isolation and disruption of the pandemic. Three medical groups, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, recently declared a national state of emergency in children's mental health. They cited dramatic increases in emergency department visits for all mental health emergencies. New York Times isn't the only outlet that seems to be getting the message. Over at CNN, Dr. Richard Besser acknowledged the lack of focus on the unintended consequences of COVID policy. Watch this. What we've learned over the past two years is that there's significant risk keeping children out of school, yeah. uh, risk in terms of not just educational learning, but socialization and mental health and, and all kinds of things that are really, really important. And we had, we had put the big emphasis over these past two years on, on reducing as much as possible the risk of infection. And with yeah. that, I don't think we paid enough attention to the risks to mental health by keeping kids out of school. You don't say. For more on this, let me bring in the president of the Brownstone Institute, Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey, thank you for being with us. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And yes, I'm outraged too to listen to these comments. And yeah, oh, we've learned that shutting down uh, kids' schools can be bad for kids. We've learned that there's a psychological cost to massively disrupting uh, people's lives and, uh, and closing their schools and forcing them into uh, Zoom classes. Uh, we, we've, you know, who could have who could have seen this coming? Who could have known this? Well, you know, <clears throat> it was an outrage that this ever happened. The kids were at a vanishing low uh, a risk of COVID in the in the first place. Uh, the whole country was shut down, not just schools, uh, for a pandemic that hadn't basically hadn't yet arrived. And here we are two years later uh, with a genuine uh, mass uh, uh, pandemic with sickness all over the country, exacerbated by the lockdowns and surrounded by astonishing carnage, you know, profoundly affecting the children more than anybody else. So this is a moral outrage and we're going to be paying a price for this for decades uh, hence. Given the realities of the data, and you, you alluded to some of it there, children are at very, very low risk not only of serious disease themselves, in fact, it's generally the case they don't even know they have the disease because it's so minor, particularly for those under the age of 12. Um, but what is the argument now? I mean, when, when the teachers' unions are, as they currently are for everyone watching this in places like New York and Chicago and Detroit, and I'm sure you'll see more of this in Los Angeles, advocating for shutdowns that they say will be weeks, but who knows, of course, is there even a good faith argument to be made at this point? I mean, how could we be at this place, Jeffrey, two years in? 
Well, I, you know, at the very outset of the pandemic, there was a perception that somehow kids were going to be the super spreaders, and and they believed this uh, from their models that you know were 15 years out of date. And uh, you can look at and see the modern uh, models by uh, by uh, the glasses and Carter Meacher and the rest of these people. Uh, they were convinced that the way disease spreads is through classrooms and school buses, and so that was their first target, was to shut down the schools. That, that they paid no attention to the data, nothing about the particulars of of COVID, which you know is a a very bad virus. But fortunately and mercifully, it, it, it spared children, unlike 1918, or for that matter, unlike uh, 67, 68, or 57, 58. So, you know, we should have known this, but instead we targeted the schools, shut them all down, thinking that this was going to somehow stop the pandemic. You know, I don't know uh, what the effect of the school shutdowns were on the spread of the virus, but it doesn't matter. Here we are two years in. And the virus is everywhere. There were a million infections uh, just over the last couple of days in the United States, right? So two years in, we're still dealing with this stuff. Everybody's going to get COVID, and people are going to acquire their immunities. So that's, in other words, this pandemic ends exactly the way competent epidemiologists always predicted. It has nothing to do with the lockdowns or shutdowns, capacity restrictions, travel restrictions, uh, bar closures, church closures, and all the rest of the things they did. It did nothing to achieve anything, and it ruined a lot of lives. Yeah, utter madness, and, and it did tremendous damage, as I think now, even those who were advocating for this at some level are beginning to understand, and that's how you have some politicians. This has become very partisan, as we know. There are some Democrats, like New York City's Mayor Eric Adams, who are saying that there does need to be a limit on how much the acolytes of Fauci can traumatize children and get away with it. He didn't use those words. Let's listen to his words. Right. Adults must stop traumatizing children. We must stop giving the appearance, appearance that there's hysteria among those who are making a decision. Michael Mulgrew and I are on the same page that we need to create a safe environment. He understands that poor black and brown children that are homeless, over 100,000 in the city, did not have access uh, to high-speed broadband. He understands that hundreds of thousands of children don't have food at home to eat. The stabilizing diet from them comes from school. He understands the uh, increase in attempted suicides when we closed down our schools before. So this is not the thing. The thing is that this continuation of creating hysteria that doesn't exist. Some some sense there, it seems. Well, you know, I, as, as he was talking, I'm, I'm just remembering these memos that I saw being circulated in February of March of 2020, in which, you know, Carter Mitri was the top advocate of closing the schools, said, don't worry about it, let's just close the schools. The kids would rather be posting on Instagram any, anyway. Well, what kids? I mean, the kids that he knew, the his friends, uh, people in his neighborhood, there, there have been you know millions of children around the world who have starved because of the uh, supply chain breakages and and uh, the poor kids all over the country that were denied access to school lunches and and just basic education. People have lost two years of their educational experiences if they're unfortunate enough to live in in a uh, a blue state. Uh, I mean, the, just the oppression that's taking place. I don't. I don't see how anybody can defend it. I think it's long past time 
in which we get some genuine apologies, not these little surreptitious, oh, we've learned that things aren't as good as we thought they would be. No, let's just, let's, let's have some truth and some honesty about what's happened to this country and to the children and, and, and some apologies and, and some admissions that these people pretended to know things they couldn't have known and they, 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 they wrecked social and market functioning in this country and took away our religious liberties and uh, ruined education for two years for, for millions, hundreds of millions of students around the world. I mean, it's, it's appalling and I think it's time for long past time for honesty. I agree with you, we're starting to see a little bit of that, but it's just beginning. Yeah, and accountability would be nice too. Jeffrey. Accountability would be nice. Yeah. yeah, thanks for being with us, appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure, thank you. Senate, Senate Major, uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is threatening to change the filibuster in order to bypass Republican objections to the Build Back Better plan, right? The First TV's Morgan Zegger is going to stop by to give perspective on that political food fight. But first, I want to talk to you about protecting your online data. A lot of companies promise that your privacy is guaranteed, but we know that's not true. That's why you need a new privacy and cybersecurity application tool called Secure. It's spelled S-E-K-U-R. Secure uses proprietary encryption and is offering secure instant messaging and email. All of your communications will be based on servers hosted in Switzerland. No big tech spying, selling, scanning your data, okay? So when you're sending emails, communications to your doctor, banker, lawyer, anybody else, you can have total confidence you're not being spied on if you use Secure. It is your solution. Costs only $5 for the messenger, only $10 for the messenger and email combo package. Go to secure.com, take back your privacy today. That's S-E-K-U-R.com. Use promo code BUCK for 25% off. The First TV's Morgan Zeggers joins us when we come back. As Democrats look to the year ahead, some are eyeing potential changes to the filibuster as a way to revive President Biden's social spending plan and, of course, to pass voting rights legislation. That's what they call it. A handful of Senate Democrats, as well as President Biden, have been pushing for an exception, of course, to the filibuster to allow them to move on the election bill. But Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona have so far held firm in their support for keeping the 60 vote hurdle in place. You know, our institutions, all that kind of stuff. Morgan Zeggers, founder of Young Americans Against Socialism, joins me to break it all down. Morgan, what's going on? Nothing much, Buck. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Happy New Year. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Is he having a happy new year? I guess we'll have to see. He said that he'll force the filibuster, uh, filibuster vote by Martin Luther King Jr. Day in order to pass a sweeping election reform bill. Here's a piece from a so-called dear colleague note. Let me be clear. January 6th was a symptom of a broader illness, an effort to delegitimize our election process, and the Senate must advance Systemic democracy reforms to repair our republic or else the events of that day will not be an aberration. They will be the new norm. Given the urgency of the situation and imminence of the votes, we as Senate Democrats must urge the public in a variety of different ways to impress upon their senators the importance of acting and reforming the Senate rules if that becomes a prerequisite for action to save our democracy. Woo! Morgan, it was a mouthful to read. I'm sure it was painful to the ears for folks, but what's the reality of this? 
I I mean, it's a little frustrating, that whole paragraph. How many times did he call us a democracy? We're not one of those, Buck. That's just my first thing. Uh, Second, the other weird word is illness. He said that there's a greater illness that they have to fight that, you know, Jan 6 was just a tiny part of. So that's a little concerning because if you remember, I think last week, Kamala Harris, our vice president, said that one of her biggest focuses, her big concern is protecting the democracy that we have moving forward. And again, it's a little concerning. And I think everything after Jan 6 has been justified because they're able to now use that whole situation to to claim that we're these evil political opponents that deserve this treatment put against us. Um, So at the end of the day, I mean, when we look at 20th century, the rise of the left in all other countries, what they usually do is immediately once they gain power, they start to change the structure. And uh, in situations like Venezuela, where they democratically elected democratic socialists like Chavez, once those men were democratically put into power, they started to change and remove restrictions that were placed into the government specifically to limit the power of people like themselves. And so seeing that in America today is just so, so concerning. And I'm telling you, it's one of the most important things that we need to focus on to prevent. Here's Senator Joe Manchin on a filibuster carve out for voting rights. Specifically, Manchin seems like he's going to hold the line, want to have you react to it. Play it. The need for us to protect democracy as we know it and the Senate as it has operated for 232 years, are extremely, extremely high bars that we must be very careful for willing to cross those. Uh, so I'm talking, I'm not agreeing to any of this to the extent I want to talk and see all the options we have open. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm thankful that he would say that, but it's also, I mean, how much can you trust a politician? I think people on the right, we get so excited when we see someone like Joe Manchin who stands up against the left, but how long will he be on our side on this? Because when I was looking this morning, I saw Senator Schumer, the majority leader, he was saying their only focus with dealing with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema is to just push, push, push and pressure, pressure, pressure them until they change their mind to do the right thing, as as he was saying. So I, I really worry about what's going on behind the scenes in D.C. right now. And I, I, I worry also with with the favors that we see, the pork that we see going on behind the scenes that most Americans don't know is going on. That's what I'm like. All right. I hope they don't have much on his head and I hope that he can have a strong backbone on this. There's also going to be a lot of demagoguery around this issue. That's for sure. Here is uh, Senator Markey saying that the GOP is attempting to carve out the voting rights of black and brown Americans. Watch this one. We cannot allow uh, for the Republican Party to use the 60 vote uh, margin that has to be reached uh, in order to pass strengthening legislation for voting rights in our country to be the obstacle uh, that blocks the protection against the erosion of rights that's going on right now in Texas, in Arizona, in Florida, in Georgia, in red state after red state. And if that's um, what the Republicans are going to do, then the filibuster must go so that we can strengthen voting rights. Yeah, got to got to undermine the system to protect the system. They're saying, by the way, when they're talking about voting rights, they mean things like, you know, basic verification for mail-in ballots or ballot harvesting measures. All of a sudden, that that's just about racism. 
Yeah, I mean, this whole identification thing, it's racist when you have to show it to vote, but now you need to be able to show your vaccination card to do anything in cities like New York City that are run by the left completely. Now, this is Senator Markey. I don't know if you remember his campaign video where it took the JFK quote of ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It took that quote, flipped it, and he said it's time for us to start asking what our country can do for us. Now, this is a straight up socialist, and it's funny to hear him talk about why we need to get rid of the filibuster when the filibuster was put in place to stop people like him from doing damaging things that would ruin the future of the country for future generations. So I'm really fuming on this one, Buck, because it's not funny, it's not okay to use things like accusations of racism and nationalism and white supremacy and all these evil words that they have thrown at us when it's something as serious as a filibuster or packing the court or getting rid of the electoral college. Like I said, in every other country where leaders are democratically elected and it transitions into a dictatorial regime that has socialism and totalitarianism, it usually starts by those leaders once in power, removing restrictions on their power, removing any limitations that are specifically put there on purpose. So this is very concerning and we are following that same timeline of other countries. Morgan, switching gears here for just a moment before we let you get back to defending the country from socialism. In a Saturday editorial, the New York Times released a headline just days before the anniversary of the January 6th riot. Every day is January 6th now, the Times headline read. So I know we're all seeing a left-wing media outlet stirring fear, suspicion, paranoia in a country that certainly needs no more of that right now. But what are your expectations for what we're going to see from them over the next few days? Oh, Buck, they are going to stretch this as much as they can. They're going to take every ounce of opportunity with this situation. I knew it on January 6th as it was happening. I remember I was cutting the meat in my kitchen for dinner and saying, oh my gosh, this is going to be the justification they've needed to now weaponize the bureaucracy, the law enforcement agencies, everything in the federal government against us. And that's exactly what they've been doing. Honestly, Buck, I can't believe it's already been a year since this happened. And we know basically nothing about it. We know nothing about the relationship, the communication between Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol Police. We know nothing about the relationship or the communication between any of the inner agencies. And it really concerns me. I think most most Americans, whether you're on the right or the left, we just want transparency on this. It's time to declassify some information. And I hope when we get power in 2022 in the House, in the Senate, we start looking into this information. They have that Jan 6 committee. Well, that's controlled by the left right now. I bet you when it's controlled by the right, or at least I hope and pray when it's controlled by the right, we investigate Jan 6, but for some other reasons. Morgan, always appreciate the perspective. Good to see you. Thank you. About 100,000 Russian troops remain poised on Ukraine's border, with intelligence analysts predicting the number might grow to 175,000 in the coming days. Talking to Jim Carafano of the Heritage Foundation in just a moment about it. Stay with us. After a phone call with Russian President Vladimir Putin, President Biden claimed he would respond decisively if Russia decides to invade Ukraine. In a statement released by Press Secretary Jen Psaki, the following uh, was said, President Biden urged Russia to de-escalate tensions with Ukraine. He made clear that the United States and its allies and partners will respond decisively if Russia further invades that country. Vladimir Putin fired back, reportedly saying sanctions would be a, quote, colossal mistake. Is the Russian president trying to soften Biden up more so than he already is? Let me bring in James Carafano, Vice President of the Heritage Foundation and an Army veteran to get his perspective. Jim, always good to have you. Happy New Year. 
All right, let's just first get to this. Where do we stand right now? I mean, how, how close to the brink of an actual hot war in Ukraine are the Russians taking things? Uh, well, you know, I think the honest answer is we just don't know. And the reason for that is literally everything is in place to do an invasion. So we'll only know if there's an invasion when they invade. And the only person who knows for sure is Vladimir Putin who would order that. So look, I have people who are telling me they think that we are literally moments away from troops marching into the Ukraine. And I have other people that say, well, they're gonna wait until after the Olympics. And then other people who say, well, Putin will wait and see what kind of concessions he can get. And if he gets good concessions, then you know maybe he'll you know just take a piece of the country. So um, I, I think it. I think right now we 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 don't know and we won't know until Putin decides. And which of course is never the situation that you want. You never want to go into a competition, basically only being able to play defense and letting the other guy decide the time and place of when the next move is. I mean, to that point about uh, the reaction that may come from this, especially from the Biden regime. He said that the U.S. will respond decisively if Putin were to invade Ukraine. People hear that and take very different things away from this. I, I understand that, you know, there, there's some uh, strategic ambiguity that I'm sure the White House will want to say they want to keep here with what exactly. But what do you think that means? I mean, what would responding decisively mean from the Biden uh, lexicon, but also in reality, or rather from those who are just trying to analyze this? What, what would that look like? Well, nothing that, that would deter Putin. That, and that's the problem, is the administration has said, we need to de-escalate. De well, that's nonsense. Because de-escalation implies that both sides need to back down. Well, Putin, he created the crisis. He's not going to back down. So our, our strategy goes in with the wrong premise. The strategy should be supporting the sovereignty and the independence of the Ukrainian people. Um, so that, that, that has me worried off the, the top. And, Biden's actually held back on providing support to Ukraine because he doesn't want to escalate the conflict. Well, that's just a nonsense, nonsense strategy. I mean, I would never recommend anybody go over to MSNBC for military analysis as a general matter, but specifically from uh, Joe Scarborough, I think it's a risky proposition, but he's part of this chorus that's saying, move aggressively in the situation. Watch this. We've got to be aggressive in our defense of our allies. And Ukraine, despite what you hear from Putin propagandists, propagandists across the world, and yes, even here in America, despite what you hear, we have to defend our democratic allies. And it's time for the Biden White House to start speaking more clearly and more aggressively and telling us how they're going to stop this invasion from happening. I mean, getting a little yelly there, but okay, well, what is that supposed to mean? Well, what is, what are the, Bi what's the Biden White House going to do? I mean, we're not going to send yeah. troops in, right? Right, Jim? Well, that's, that's the old Joe Scarborough. Look, we're not going to, we're not going to fight for Ukraine. And honestly, we don't have to. There's 44 million Ukrainians. They can fight for their own country, but, but we have a vested interest in their success and deterring Putin would have, would mean the more resources we put in there before there's a conflict, the more likely that there won't be a conflict. By restraining putting in resources and giving the Ukrainians things to help defend themselves, we think that we're 
trying to de-escalate, but we're not. We're just encouraging Putin to act before we act. So he's already kind of missed the bubble there. Sanctions have no relevance at all. Sanctions are not a deterrent. This, this country is sanction-proof, and the reason for that is it's an authoritarian dictatorship. They can always rewire things to make sure the stuff that they need. They can get all the caviar and vodka that they require. So the notion that somehow sanctions are deterred them is just not true. And let's and there's not widespread appetite even for sanctions in Europe. Many Europeans, for example, say, "What are you going to do? Sanction gas exports? Then we're going to freeze this winter if we don't if we sanction Russian gas exports." So even if there's a war, there will be people that say we still have to buy Russian gas because we have no alternative. So just the threat of saying sanctions, it not only does it not sound tough to the Russians, it actually said, that's all you got in the kit bag? That's all you got to push back on me? Seems, yeah, seems like we know where that's heading. Uh, another part of this is, of course, going to be, here we are under a Biden administration. Uh, after four years of being told that Trump was in Putin's pocket, meanwhile, Biden's in office less than a year, and already it looks like Russia may decide now's the time to go into Ukraine. It's interesting that, of course, uh, Bi- uh, Putin went after Crimea when Obama was president and Biden was the vice president. But it seems like they're already preparing for this, Jim. Here's uh, over at CNN someone saying that this is really about Trump vindicating the aims of Russia. It's, it's about Trump somehow. Watch this. Ukraine wants to be shielded by the West. And so, uh, yes, sanctions are not enough in the view of President Zelensky. But, of course, the U.S. and NATO are also promising to strengthen the military posture uh, and provide some defensive weapons for Ukraine uh, to uh, uh, try to deter a Russian attack. You had uh, President Trump. Uh, on behalf uh, or vindicating the aims of Russia, pressuring uh, Ukraine uh, when he was president. Joe Biden is taking a different posture. He's supporting Ukraine. Uh, but uh, but it's clearly a uh, standoff that's very difficult. On the other hand, I will say one thing. Russia knows that the United States is not going to uh, deploy military forces to defend Ukraine. Okay. This is just rewriting history here. I mean, this is just not, this is not reality this guy's talking about or, as what happened with Trump. First of all, Donald Trump gave weapons to Ukraine, weapons that the Russians didn't want the Ukrainians to have. And so not only did he, he actually gave real capability to the Ukrainians that they needed and wanted. Um, Putin tried nothing on his watch. So somehow claiming that this is Trump's fault is ridiculous. Look, there's two reasons this is happening. One is Afghanistan, because Biden looks so reckless and clueless and deer in the headlights and incapable of dealing with the situation and spent more time trying to cover up his own failures than he did responding to the crisis. People said, okay, we know what kind of president we are facing. And then they looked around the president and what did they see? All they see the same Obama people that the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans and the Iranians played for eight years. And they say, we know how this game is played. So Putin is going into this with the playbook of the other team in his hands and knowing who the coach is and what plays they're going to call. He has absolutely every advantage. And that's why he's moving with such aggression and such confidence. Jim, I think we're going to be talking about this more. Unfortunately, a lot more in the weeks ahead. Appreciate your perspective on it, your expertise. Like to say Happy New Year, but 
Going Not on. Ukraine. Yeah. Good to see you, no, buddy. I just gotta go, he's got to go three through three. Ukraine, Taiwan, and Iran. He's got to get all three right. And right now, he doesn't look like he's going to make the playoff. Not a surprise. Good to see you. Thank you, buddy. For over a year now, the left has been claiming that questioning the legitimacy of an election is a danger to democracy. But what happens when one of their own does it? We've got that story and more coming up in Quick Hit, so be sure to stay with us. Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter ban was apparently too little too late, and the views Anna Navarro concocts her own big lie about the 2016 election. It is time for crickets. Let's start with The View, the dumbest show on television. Uh, I think really of any kind. I mean, there might be some reality TV shows with, you know, drunken former debutantes throwing wine at each other that are a little bit dumber, but it's a close call. And Navarro says Donald Trump was illegitimately elected in 2016 when she went on a rant. Um, she's among the dumbest political analysts you'll find anywhere in television or any medium for that matter. Here she is. And, and, and we've seen Republican after Republican who on January 6th was shocked and calling for investigation and for truth and for reaction and action from Trump. We've seen them bow down to Trump because they want to stay elected and because they're putting their own positions over democracy and over defending the U.S. institution of, of, a, of a legitimate election. Look, I felt, I felt that Joe, Donald Trump had not been legitimately elected. I thought he'd gotten help from the Russians. But you know what? It would have never occurred to me to take up arms against Donald Trump. That's just not what we do in America. There we have it, yeah. 2020, or 2016 election, rather. Stolen. Still allowed to say that. Illegitimately elected. That's the phrase. They're allowed to say whatever they want, of course. And this is in large part because... They have the backing of social media for their propaganda. This is a huge problem for this country going forward when you have a small group of tech oligarchs who effectively can determine what is allowed to be said in the public sphere because that is the power that the social media behemoths have at this point. That's a big issue, right? But Democrats aren't shying away from this. They like the censorship. They want to be able to shut down things that they don't like. They want to kick their competitors in the political space out of the public square. They don't want to meet them head on in the marketplace of ideas. They want to silence. Here's Representative Jayapal, for example, telling everybody that banning conservative lawmakers, that's not enough. Watch. It's no secret that our social media companies have been part of their algorithms promoting disinformation. And um, I think that these steps are important, but frankly, a little too little and a little too late. Um, the reality is it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene. All over Twitter, social media, Facebook, uh, all of these companies have been using algorithms that are just about clickbait, not about truth. Too little, too late. Just about clickbait, not about truth. Who determines what that truth is? Oh, that's right. The lib-run, progressive super companies like Google and Twitter and Facebook. And they, of course, don't want to have any regulation of that, right? We have all kinds of... I do radio for three hours a day. I can't just start cursing. There's a lot of things. There was the fairness doctrine in radio for a long time. There were a lot of things that are regulated on the radio, but somehow these big tech companies, they can't be regulated by the FCC the same way. They can't be told, sorry, you have to actually 
play by a set of rules to allow for a free open communication? No, I disagree. I think they should be. I think it's time conservatives, Republicans actually did something about it. Um, then there's the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. Didn't win any election. She was the lieutenant governor. Then Andrew Cuomo was grabbing uh, staff, female staff members in places he shouldn't have been, and that got him in trouble. And so she now, Hochul, is the governor of New York. New York is going through its really worst ever period of COVID cases. And what does the idiot governor of New York say? Well, you know, if you're with the kids and you're at home, you know, take them out, get them vaccinated. That sounds like a great idea. Watch. If I'm a parent and I'm saying, the kids are home, they're driving me a little nuts today, let's take them out to get their vaccinations. So when they go back to school on Monday, and let me put an exclamation point on it, back to school on Monday, that they are safe. So parents, I'm pleading with you. They're safe without the vaccines. Children do not need this vaccination, which is a short-lived vaccination, as we know, in terms of its protection. But they just won't ever give it up. Dr. Robert Malone was on the Joe Rogan podcast recently and got a lot of attention for it. He is a uh, world-class expert on mRNA vaccines and has been shining a light on things like the lack of a willingness to approach early treatment for COVID from the Fauciite regime and the Biden administration, among other things. But specifically on the issue of masks, he points out Fauci has no integrity. Watch. Are cotton and surgical masks effective at preventing the spread of Omicron? Yeah. When the CDC says they are effective, in fact, they are. Dr. Malone, that's a lie. Is that not true? Yes. It's a, I mean, it's Tony. Uh, I, what can I say? Tony has no integrity. He lies all the time. And I've, me and my peers have, have been watching this for decades. We just shrug our shoulders and shake our heads and say it's Fauci. It is Fauci. That's it for Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is next. Shields high.